0: Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. We've been teaching on the Holy Ghost, different aspects of the Holy Ghost, and we want to continue along that line this evening. Maybe take a little different tack toward, uh, toward the uh, end result, but um, still talking about the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth... Whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. The the Bible makes a distinction between the Holy Ghost within and the Holy Ghost upon us. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, just before he left the earth and was taken up to be seated at the right hand of the Father, said, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in both in Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now I want you to look with me also to John chapter 20. This tells of the resurrection story. You remember how that well, let's just read it. Beginning in verse 1. It said, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. We know John's talking about himself, and said unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they both ran together and the other sepulchre, uh, the other disciple, did outrun people. Peter, I'll get it in a minute, did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeing the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. They went in also, then went in also the other disciple, John. When he came first, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Folks, that fascinates me. The Bible says, even before Jesus went to Jerusalem for the purpose of uh, being crucified and going to the cross and so forth, it said he clearly began to teach his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, had to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to be taken captive there and beaten and crucified. And you remember, Peter stepped up and said, Not so, Lord. And Jesus responded, Peter had just spoken by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to identify that he believed that Jesus was the Christ. Now he's speaking, telling Jesus that what Jesus says is going to happen isn't really going to happen. And Jesus says to him, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. So just as Peter was inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell who Jesus was, he was just as inspired by the devil to try to thwart the plan of salvation by talking Jesus, trying to talk Jesus out of going to, to Jerusalem. But John says here that they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. What did they think he was telling them? Now, I, I'm not going to be too hard on them. Well, I'm not going to be any harder on them than I have already because who knows what we would do in that same situation. But it seems to me he gave them plenty of information. And in fact, when he is raised from the dead... And goes to them, he upbraids them for their hardness of heart and unbelief. In other words, he thinks that he gave them enough information to act on and to believe what he said. Nevertheless, they didn't know yet that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again into their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and seeing two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, but she knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Then Jesus said unto her, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is the same master. Then Jesus said unto her, notice this in verse 17. Jesus said unto her, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but, I go to my bre- but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Now folks, remember what the requirements are to be saved. Romans chapter 10, Paul specifically outlines it. He said, if you'll believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as your Lord. So it's believing in the heart and saying with your mouth. That's the operation of faith. It works the same in every area, but that's the way that you get saved. That's the only way you can get saved. Everybody that's been born again has somehow, some way, in some manner, utilized the believing in their heart and saying with their mouth. You may remember, maybe you noticed a couple of verses uh, above Before Jesus appears to Mary, she talks about Jesus being her Lord. She said, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. So when she hears him, she hears Jesus call her name. That's what caused her to recognize that it was him. She calls him Master. But notice Jesus stops her. He said, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father and to your Father, my God and your God. Notice that he's giving Mary the same relationship with the father that he's claimed all the time that he's been in his earthly ministry. And remember, that always got him in trouble. Anytime he said, my father and I are one, people took up stones to kill him. They considered that him making himself equal or claiming to be equal with God. But Jesus very simply says, very clearly says, the God that I have a relationship, the father which I have is your father and your God too. Folks, that's huge. Things have changed drastically. She came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, just like Jesus said, go to the brethren, and they had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had thus said, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, folks, when Jesus breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Ghost, they either got something or they didn't. If they didn't get something... If it wasn't Jesus' intent to provide them something, then why did he breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Ghost? It seems to me that if Jesus said what the Bible records him to say, receive you the Holy Ghost, and they didn't get something, then Jesus has tricked them. Because if it was me, and I, hope, I would imagine the same thing would be true of you, if we were in the group and Jesus said, receive the Holy Ghost, I'd expect something, wouldn't you? And notice what he gives them, or what the result of what he gives them is. He talks about receiving the Holy Ghost concerning the remission of sins. In other words, this is where the church was born. This is where the disciples were saved. Now I want you to turn with me over to to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 gives us some information That I think we would do well to give heed to. Let's start in verse 11. We're not going to read the whole thing. But it starts off. The whole purpose of uh, Paul writing the letter to the the Hebrews. Is to show them. The greater. Work of Jesus. And faith in Jesus. The greater work of salvation. Than the Old Testament sacrifices. And the rituals and the keeping of the law. And and the prophets. But Christ being kind of a high priest. This is Hebrews 9.11. Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of, bull, of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained an eternal redemption for us. For if the bull, blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, the Old Covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. They couldn't have that under the Old Covenant. They couldn't have that even in keeping the sacrifices. Let's skip down a little bit. Some of these verses are not pertaining to the things that we want to talk about. Skip down with me to verse 23. Nah, better back up a little bit. Let's start in verse 21 again. Moreover, he's talking about Moses, sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So he's saying that the Old Covenant, during the Old Covenant, the high priest would take the blood, and and the Jews know this, of course. We don't know all the ins and outs or details, perhaps. But the Jews understood and, and knew that it was part of the ritual. Whether they understood the meaning or not, we don't know. But Paul starts talking about how that Moses sprinkled everything with blood to sanctify it as holy. And he says, if the blood of bulls and goats was sufficient to sanctify the earthly vessels of the ministry... All the, the goings on and all the, the implements and instruments of the uh, the old testament sacrifice. He said that it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now notice that phrase. The heavenly things themselves. In other words, he's saying the whole reason that God gave to the Jews. The instructions of the temple and the keeping of the sacrifices and the, the shedding of blood for the remission of sins and so forth everything that the high priest did here on the earth was a pattern for these heavenly things now does that mean there's a temple up in heaven i don't know does that mean there's a holy place in heaven there has to be whether it's the same in appearance as it is here on the earth which is very possible Because when the Bible talks about the pattern of things here versus heavenly things, it gives them an equal standing. So maybe the throne room of God is the temple in heaven. I don't know. Maybe the throne room of God is the holy of holies. The original, the real deal. I don't know that either. But notice it says it was therefore necessary here on the earth that the patterns of things, the earthly tabernacle and the instruments and implements and so forth, that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, meaning these sacrifices of blood, the killing of the animals. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. He didn't go into the earthly temple. That's not where he made uh, atonement for man's sins. Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true. But unto heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us; nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered in with, to the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then he must have often suffered since the foundation of the world. In other words, he's saying just like the Old Testament, uh, in despite the fact that the Old Testament sacrifices had to be made year after year after year, he's saying Jesus doesn't have to do it but once. He's saying if he had to do it year by year, then have, then Jesus would have had to do that from the foundations of the world. But now once in the end of the world, has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, folks, think about this. Jesus clearly tells Mary, don't touch me because I haven't yet ascended to the Father. What has he not yet done? Apparently, the things that are identified in here in Hebrews chapter 9. He hasn't placed his holy blood in the heavenly temple. He hasn't sanctified the heavenly things which are greater than the pattern of the things that are here. The Jewish temple and so forth. So Jesus apparently entered into the holy of holies in heaven. What that is, where that is, it would have to be the dwelling place of God. It would have to be what we might consider to be the throne room of God. Whether there is literally a throne room or not, we don't know. But Jesus presents his blood before the Father. And he told Mary, don't touch me because I have not yet gone to my Father and your Father. He's saying, when I go, when I offer the blood for the redemption of mankind, then my Father becomes your Father and my God becomes your God. It would take a long time, time I really don't want to take. But if we went back to the Old Testament and looked at all the rituals uh, the ritual actions and the steps to take for the sacrifice and the day of atonement and all that kind of stuff. We'd lose interest way before we finished with the list. The details that are identified and the details that had to be kept just to make a once a year atonement for sins are staggering. Yet the Bible says that that pattern of these sacrifices and the rituals that take place have its true meaning or true origin in heaven. The thing that, I'm, the point I'm trying to make, and I'm taking a long time to get there, I guess, but the point I'm trying to make is simply this. Jesus did not just haphazardly die on the cross and go to heaven and say, here I am, God. Jesus fulfilled every little thing. If the details were important for man to keep them and man to do it right, then how much more? would Jesus have to do everything perfectly? Carry out the fulfillment of the things that were patterned in the, uh, in the earthly temple? This redemption, this salvation is a complex and complete thing. I think sometimes we talk about salvation because it was made so easy. And folks, you can't get any easier than taking something by faith. There's no work on our part. There's no works that we must do like they did in the Old Testament. Even if you remember the the Passover, the institution of the Passover, the seven days of unleavened bread and all that kind of stuff, it was a burdensome task. Everything about keeping the law of Moses was a burdensome task upon the people. Now, was God just trying to burden them down? Was God just trying to make it hard on them? Now, the Bible says that all the things of the Old Covenant are examples for us. So what are we to learn from the example? Folks, for me, the example that Jesus set for us was one of covering every little aspect Crossing every T, dotting every I, to do the least of the least of the requirements of the Old Covenant, to fulfill them in great measure. So here we have the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and remember the word Comforter is the Greek word Paraclete. And it means Comforter, but it means a lot of other things too. It means Comforter, it means Counselor, it means Helper. It means intercessor, it means advocate, it means strengthener, it means standby. All those things, all those characteristics, all those aspects of the Holy Ghost are designed to bring us into victory. And Jesus said of the Comforter, the first thing he really said about the Comforter, I'll pray the Father and he'll send you another Comforter that he may abide with you forever. For he shall be in you and shall be with you. The first thing Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit who can only come after he finishes the the, uh, work of redemption. The Holy Spirit can only come. He can't come legally to indwell us or to empower us unless Jesus accomplishes the plan of redemption down to the most minute detail. There's a verse of Scripture in Romans chapter 4. It's just at the end of the chapter. And it says this. It says, Jesus... Died for our sins and was raised again from the dead that God may be just and a justifier of mankind. It says Jesus was raised for our justification, but the original translation of that, the preposition that's translated for, for would indicate the cause of Jesus' resurrection, but the original Greek has that preposition. As a word that pertains to time, not cause, but time. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Jesus wasn't raised for our justification, He was. But that's not the point that Paul's trying to make at that, in that verse of Scripture. He's saying that Jesus was raised when we were justified. In other words, there was a moment in time, a specific second, when the price was paid. And at that instant, when the price was paid, the life of God came back upon Jesus and raised him from the dead. Well, we know when that took place. It took da- place three days and nights after the crucifixion. It took place at this point in time, maybe just a few moments before Jesus appears to Mary. I can't imagine that Jesus was hanging around in the place where, he was, where, the, that he, where the grave and the sepulcher was. I can't see him just waiting instead of going back to the father as quickly as he can. So apparently it was just moments before he addressed Mary and talked about the new relationship he would have with God by becoming her father now too. The righteousness that we have is so complete, there's not one detail of our lives that it doesn't cover. Not one. Now concerning what Jesus said about the Holy Ghost. He'd be in us. He'd live in us. And he'd be with us or upon us. We have in the scripture two lists of nine. That cover both the spirit upon us and the spirit within us. We've been talking a little bit about the manifestations of the spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are nine manifestations of the spirit that are listed there. Nine things that the Holy Ghost does Nine ways that the Holy Ghost operates for the benefit of reaching others as signs and wonders so that they could come to Jesus. These gifts of the Spirit or manifestations of the Spirit aren't so much for us, although they do encourage us and they help strengthen us when they, when they uh, occur by the will of the Holy Ghost. But they're primarily for service. They're primarily, well, they're not primarily. They are the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. You'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That power is the the nine manifestations of the Spirit. But we've got another list of nine, too. That other list of nine is over in Galatians chapter 5. We know of that as the fruit of the Spirit. Turn with me over there, if you will. Galatians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, Faith, literally faithfulness, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Now, a lot of times, and the translators didn't help us much in this, but a lot of times people think that he's talking about the work of the Holy Ghost in that list of nine things. But it's not talking about the Holy Spirit. There's only one Greek word that's used for spirit throughout the New Testament. It's the word pneuma. And you have to find, by looking at the context whether it's talking about the human spirit or whether it's talking about the Holy Spirit. Where the translators thought it was talking about the Holy Spirit, they capitalized the word spirit. But in the original Greek, there is no capitalization or there is no distinction between uppercase and lowercase. It's all uppercase. It's all caps. Or what we would consider to be all caps. Now, we can readily identify that this would be the fruit of the human spirit, the recreated, born-again human spirit rather than the Holy Spirit because Jesus said in Luke in uh, John chapter 15 he said I'm the vine you're the branches if you abide in me you'll bear much fruit well where does fruit grow fruit grows on the branch and so here where the Bible is speaking of where the Holy Ghost inspired John or inspired Paul excuse me to speak of these things these fruit of the spirit or the results the characteristics of being born again, of our Christian walk and our Christian life. These are things that are developed and grow in us according to our will. And we should ever be growing in the things of God. We should ever be growing in these nine characteristics. Because this list of nine in Galatians chapter 5 are characteristics of holiness. The list in First Corinthians chapter 12 they are in some way the power of God the manifestation of God's power now unfortunately you can have power without having character or holiness there are many cases the church at Corinth is a, is a great example Paul said that they come behind in no good gift but the things that he talked to him about were things where through the gaining and the advancement of the knowledge of God they would grow in holiness they would grow in the characteristics of love he told them that the better way when he's talking to them and identifying the manifestations of the spirit in chapter 12 first Corinthians chapter 13 he says here's a better way he talks about walking in love he gives them the understanding and the definition of love more so than any other place in the scripture and he's trying to get them to develop in character in holiness so that they can be respected and convincing when the manifestations of the Spirit are in operation. Jesus said that you'd know a tree by the fruit that it produces. He said the same thing about our lives. Remember in John chapter 13, Jesus says a new commandment I give unto you that you might love. Your brother as yourself, he said. By this, the love that we show, not by the power that we operate in, but by the love that we show, shall all men know you are my disciples. Romans thirteen ten says, "Love works no evil to works no ill to his neighbor." Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, one of the things that we see from this list, or things pertaining to this list. In Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, we see that these things can grow. For example, Paul said to the Thessalonians, the second letter he wrote to them, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he said, We thank God always for you because your faith groweth exceedingly. Well, then faith can grow. And the love, King James calls it charity, but the love of each one of you abounds toward each other. So you can grow in love. You can grow in all of these characteristics. And it seems like the people, the part of the church world that believes in the power of God, believes in the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, it seems they put more emphasis on power. Whereas the fundamentalist part of the body of Christ here on the earth focus more on the characteristics of holiness, the fruit of the Spirit, because they don't accept the power still in operation as you and I do. And so you've got the church working a split down the middle. You've got one half of the church or one part of the church, one segment of the church. You've got emphasizing the power. The other segment of the church, another segment of the church, not all of them certainly, but another segment emphasizes the, the holiness, the character. And each side say in many circles, each side claims to be operating by the Spirit of God because of the fruit that their lives are producing. As in the case of the Corinthian church, the manifestation of the Holy Ghost was something that they were very proud of, rightly so, but not spending any time on character issues at all, and Paul tries to correct some of that. Another segment of the church, because they don't have what we know of as the power of God by the Holy Ghost being upon them, he is within them they have eternal security because of the spirit of god within but since they don't have any power they emphasize the fruit of the spirit and it's there's no question about it that many of the people that don't believe in the power of god exhibit the fruit of the spirit in their lives or develop the fruit of the spirit in their lives to a greater degree than people that believe in the power and so in much of the church world there's a a pulling between two extremes one group's got power but very little character or holiness. Another group has holiness, but no power. But God wants you to have both. God wants you to have both. There are a lot of times in the Scripture where we can identify that the fruit of a person's life is what put some people over or brought them into God's plan for their lives. For example, you remember in John chapter 2 when Jesus was at the wedding feast of Cana with his mother. She comes to him and says, we're out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with you? Mine hour is not yet come. The more I meditate on this story, the more I seem to see, or the more I believe I see. You judge it for yourself. Because there's some of this stuff that you can't prove or disprove. But let me pose a question to you. If you were Mary, what kind of conversations would you have had with Jesus as he was growing up about the work that God had for him to do? See, when Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come, it seems that she's trying to push him into something that he's not sure it's time for. Well, how would she know that anything was coming? Folks, if anybody else in the world believed, we don't have record of it. But Mary knows what happened to her. Mary knows that the Holy Ghost overshadowed her. She knows that Jesus is the Son of God. She knows that Jesus has a purpose. Now, how much she knew about that, we're left to speculation. But how much would you have talked to Jesus if you were his mother? And would Jesus have told her? Why not? There had to come a time, we see Jesus at age 12, when he's left behind in Jerusalem and his parents can't find him for three days. And folks, parents would freak out back then just like parents would freak out today. I'm sure there were all kinds of thoughts that they had about what might have happened to Jesus and what happened to him and, and so forth. But Jesus is astonished when they find him. He's astonished that they didn't know where he would be. So we know at least at age 12, Jesus understood what his father's purpose was for him. Again, did he know everything that he wound up to know? Probably not. But he knew enough. And even when Mary tells the servants after Jesus seems to rebuff her, Even what she tells the servants at the wedding feast speaks to his character. She says to the servants, even after Jesus says, I don't have anything to do with this, she tells the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Well, folks, is that power? Is that a reference to his power or a reference to his character? It speaks to his character. Now, there are any number of things that might have happened in Jesus' upbringing There may have been supernatural things that took place. It may not have been noticeable in every case. For example, Jesus couldn't have been sick. What does that mean? Jesus was never tempted to have a a sore throat, a cold and a sore throat. There may have been things that Mary understood more and more about the things that the angel originally told her about being the the mother of the Messiah. There may may be things that he witnessed. One thing we know for sure, before he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, he knew how to resist the devil. The Bible tells us about him after being out in the wilderness for 40 days, how the tempter came to him and Jesus answered him each time it's written. He quoted the word to him to overcome the temptation. Well, when did Jesus learn that? Did he just learn that out in the wilderness? I don't believe that. If he didn't know that up front, he certainly wouldn't have been qualified or prepared or experienced enough to go into the ministry that God had for him. So he understood how that part worked. So his mother has seen things all throughout his lifetime where Jesus is putting the word in practice. And I don't believe for a moment that God would try to hide from Mary or even the rest of the family, the other half-brothers and sisters that he had too. There's no reason, there would be no cause for us to believe that God would hold things back so that they wouldn't have a chance to see who their brother and son was. So Mary speaks to his character. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. You remember in uh, the book of Acts chapter 9 where Paul is on the road to Damascus and he meets Jesus. It says, the light shined round about him, brighter than the noonday sun. And he was knocked off the animal he was riding. Heard a voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Paul answers and says, who art thou, Lord? And Jesus answers, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Paul now knows that Jesus is alive. He calls him Lord. What would you have me do, Lord? Well, first of all, he says, Who art thou, Lord? But then the next question he asked was, What would you have me to do? You don't ask somebody what they want you to do if you haven't just given your life over to them. Well, the Bible tells us that he was there for three days without sight. Paul says himself, (coughs) He couldn't see for the glory of the light, not because of sickness and disease. But because the light was so much brighter than anything that he could see, it was like he was in a flashbulb blindness for three days. And then the Bible says after he gained strength, he went into the synagogues and started preaching Jesus. And nobody wanted anything to do with him. Apparently, some may have thought that this is an elaborate scheme to flush out the Christians so that persecution could be levied against them or put in prison or whatever that's what he was sent to do in the beginning and so nobody trusted him until Barnabas took him Barnabas brought him before the church he brought him before the elders I think it was in Jerusalem when they went there he brought them before the leaders so that they could see that he was the real thing he had had a real experience with God and his life was changed And folks, his life changed instantly. One thing you got to give Paul credit for, when he found the truth, he was all in. But Paul might never have been recognized or accepted by the church if it hadn't been for Barnabas. Why did they trust Barnabas? We don't have any record that Barnabas did any miracles or healed the sick or anything like that. He may well have, we just don't know. Why did they believe Barnabas? Because of his character. Because of his character. Paul was launched into ministry because they believed in the character of another man, an apostle himself, called Barnabas. If it hadn't been for that, who knows how the plan and the purpose of God for Paul's ministry would have gone. So we should grow and we should develop in these character traits. We should grow in love. We should grow in joy. Now turn with me to James chapter 1. We could take each one of these characteristics and identify how the saving work of Jesus provides those for us. For example, the Bible says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, Romans 5, 5. And that shedding abroad in our heart is at the new birth. John picks up on that, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, I think. He says, we know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. So the love of God is something more than just a way that God wants us to live. It's something that provides us a foundation to receive and to walk in the things of God. The same thing's true of peace. The Bible says in Romans 5:1, being justified therefore by peace, or being justified therefore by Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. So all of these fruit of the Spirit, all these nine character traits of holiness, are imparted to us in the, at the new birth. When we become a new creation in Christ Jesus and old things pass away, these are part of the old things. In the place of hate, there's love. In the place of fear and depression, there's joy. James 1, 2, you're going to be familiar with these scriptures. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Folks, I want you to realize that how we handle the, the difficulties of life have everything to do with whether or not we grow in the character and the nature of God. Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Tests, trials, and afflictions. Folks, nobody enjoys them. You're not supposed to enjoy them. You're supposed to act like you enjoy them. Not because you're in the middle of them. But because you believe God will deliver you from whatever the trouble you're facing is. Count it all joy. It's the development of character traits, one of the character traits of holiness. Folks, these are the things that equip us. These are the things that prepare us for God to use us. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God won't use anybody unless they're perfect. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. You have to be highly developed in these things for God to use you in any of the power or gifts or the manifestations of the Spirit. Because we've got too many Evidences, we've got too many situations where God uses whoever he can, whoever's open, whoever's willing, no matter what their character is. And quite frankly, in Pentecostal churches throughout the years, some of the people that God has chosen to use have created problems for others in the church because they know their lives. And sometimes it makes it hard for people to accept that it really is God because they think if it was God, why would they use the person over here that shall we say struggles with sin as opposed to somebody with more experience in walking with God that have put some of those things away it doesn't make sense to us in many cases but it's not supposed to it's really not supposed to but that doesn't do away with the fact that God wants us to grow in holiness that he wants us to develop that that's a part of the work of the Holy Spirit in us not on us but in us so that we can be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse divers temptations. Even if it takes longer than you want it to. Even if it's more difficult than you want it to be. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally. And upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord, because a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So joy is a characteristic that the Bible tells us to, to develop. And the reason, the only way, the only reason, the only purpose or result that we can identify that the Bible tells us about why to count it all joy is because we're standing in faith. If God has heard and answered our prayer, we have no reason not to be joyful. If God has heard and answered our prayer, we have no reason not to count it joy. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I believed I received months ago and still can't see the answer. Well, me too. If the Bible said count it all joy for a month, then we'd know what the end time is. But I can't find anything like that. Can you? So what are we to understand? What are we to act on? God can't lie. He's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said it and shall he not do it? Has he spoken it and shall he not make it good? Yeah, but for goodness sakes, I thought he would have done so by now. Time shouldn't matter to us when we've got the the truth of God's word to rely on. Throughout the years, we've had situations where you hear things about people in the ministry and, and that type of stuff. I've had people since the beginning of the church almost Come to me and tell me who we should have in to speak or to minister. They want to tell me about the teaching that they do or the preaching that they do or the, the uh, signs and miracles that God performs in their ministry and so forth. And I, this certainly isn't the case with everybody. But it's not uncommon for me to know things about the character of those people's lives that the people who are telling me that I ought to have them into the church don't know. And folks, I've got to tell you, I'd rather have somebody with the right character come into the church and minister to you. Even if they don't have any signs and wonders and miracles, I'd rather have that ten times over than have somebody in that moves by the Holy Ghost but hasn't dealt with the character issues of their life. There's a guy, and it's been many years ago, there's a guy that was involved in, well, really trying to steal a church from another person. The pastor of the church was a young man, and he died unexpectedly. And this minister, if I said his name, probably 80 to 90% of you would know who he is. This minister made a play for the church, trying to take the church over in the middle of a tremendous hardship upon the people of the church it was a very successful church it was a growing church and so when the people lost their pastor unexpectedly like it, like it occurred everybody was in despair and everybody was wondering what do we do now and this guy made every attempt to gain control of that church not to the benefit of the people because, but because it was what he thought he should do or God wanted him to do I don't know what the claim was well, that was many years ago, and without question, the Bible makes a place for people to be restored. And maybe he's repented, maybe he's cleared it up with God, maybe there are things, that are, well, certainly there are things that are going on behind the scenes in their lives that I'm not aware of. But things like that make me look sideways at people. Things like that make me wary. Things like that create a... Um, a position for me that I could never have somebody like that in the church unless God specifically told me to. It would never be a question of do I want somebody to come in because I'm looking at the fruit of their lives, not the results of their ministry. And folks, I don't think a lot of people get that. I don't think a lot of people look for fruit. Remember, Jesus said you'd know them by their fruit. Paul spends more time, if you add up all the things and all the times that he said for us to beware of false teachers, false prophets, false apostles, and so forth. He warns us against people that have ministry claims. But the only thing he tells us to look out for is for the fruit of their lives. Well, if that's the way that we treat and we, assuming that we should treat people like that, I don't know how not to. I'm not going to open the church up. I'm not going to open you up to being influenced by somebody that's of poor or undeveloped character. No matter how famous they might be because of their ministry. But I see folks following these people that don't have any character. I see people leaving the sound doctrine of the word to follow others. Who really don't have the fruit in their lives. Some people don't stay around long enough to develop fruit. Sometimes that's on purpose. People are going to know you and me by our love. They're going to know you and me by the fruit of the spirit in our lives. They're not just going to know us because of the miracles. Or the signs and wonders of the healings that take place. Don't get me wrong, God wants those things to take place and He'll use whoever He can. Sometimes the results are simply based on what God had to work with. But we should make the fruit of the Spirit, the development of the fruit of the Spirit, the uppermost priority in our lives. We should take the Word of God and apply it by faith to develop character, to believe for and expect God to move by his Spirit. Folks, if you look at what Paul talked about and the book of Acts shows us in his life about how the Holy Ghost moves, it's evident that at any time, any service, any time, there could and should be people that are inspired by the Spirit to deliver a message directly from God The Holy Spirit should be able to move in a service to perform a miracle right before our eyes. These are things God wants to do. These are things that God ordained to be done. But instead, I think too many times we focus on the power instead of the more important things. Paul even said it himself. We referred to it earlier, but Paul said it regarding the Corinthian church. He said, you come behind in no good gift. They had all the manifestations of the Spirit in operation in their church. He gives some instruction to how these things should operate in the church, but then says, but let me show you a more excellent way. And then he talks about the love of God. He talks about developing in the love of God. That should be a priority in our lives, folks. That should be a matter of our faith. It should be a matter of our confession. Not just knowledge that, oh yeah, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love. But we should say that we are the things that the Bible says we are. We should say that the love of God that's been shed abroad in our heart at the new birth is producing the results that God said that it would. That should be our focus and our aim. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the Holy Ghost that's been given unto us, the spirit of truth to guide us. We thank you, Father, that he guides us into all truth. He guides us into the truth of the word. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Let us see like we've never seen before. Help us to operate and to produce fruit, not just ministry results, not just tongues and interpretation or prophecies and power. But let our love so shine. Let our love be known in such a way that people can't resist. We yield ourselves to you, Holy Spirit, to be led, to be guided, to be taught. Correct us where we need to be corrected. Chasten us where we need to be chastened. Instruct us in the things that we need to know. And we ask that our righteousness might be seen and known to everyone we come in contact with. In Jesus' name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us.